Uh, last week, Pastor Jeff began what will be a plan to be, God willing, a five-part sermon series from the book of Colossians. The plan is to take a chapter a week for the next four after last week's introduction. Today, I'm going to go from verse 1 of chapter 1 to verse 23. I think 124 fits better with chapter 2, and so we'll hit that next week. You've been sitting for a while, and we'll be sitting for a bit more, so why don't you stand as I read God's Word this morning? You can stretch your legs, and we can honor God's Word by standing as I read it. Colossians 1, 1 to 23. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God the fa- our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we prayed for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we've heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with wisdom of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise because your word is righteous. And so please have mercy on us now by your spirit that you might teach us your word, teach us your statutes, that we may hasten and not delay to keep your commands, for they are our portion. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This, or these 23 verses are in three parts. The first two verses are an intro. Paul wrote it. He wrote it of the faithful saints and brothers in Christ at Colossae. Then verses 3 to 14 are a prayer of sorts filled with thankfulness. Give it, or thankfulness and the prayer for more fruitfulness in the gospel. And then after that, in verses 15 to 23, are just Christ. The greatness, the preeminence, the glory of Jesus. What I'd like you to do is consider uh, priorities in this text. Some priorities. 
Paul begins after the brief intro with a prayer. He is simply following the example set for us by Jesus Christ. Christ prayed. If you read the Gospels at portions, you'll note that in order to get away, he would leave the crowds, escape the crowds, often at night and go and pray. In fact, the one thing that Jesus made sure he did on the eve of his betrayal and coming execution was pray for the evening while the disciples slept. So it should come no surprise that as a matter of first priority, Paul begins this letter as he does many letters with prayer. He prays. We can learn something from that, can't we? Prayer ought to be our priority. Our fellowship with the Lord, with great thanksgiving and praying for our brothers and sisters, prayer. So how are you doing, brothers and sisters, with this? How are you doing as a husband for your wife or vice versa? How are you doing as a father and mother for your children? How many of us are here standing in Christ because of the prayers of our parents? So please be praying for your children. And then, of course, in the church or at work, prayer should be our first priority. But we not only learn of the priority of prayer, we learn what priorities in prayer should be from what Paul prays. He prays for basically two things here. I would categorize them as thankfulness and fruitfulness. Paul's prayer is packed with thankfulness. And he's thankful for people. Paul prays with great thankfulness for God's people. And he prays for the thankfulness of God's people for their fruitfulness. The gospel has come to them and it is bearing fruit and increasing in verse 6 among them since the day they heard it. And Paul is naming specific areas that the gospel has changed them that he's now expressing thankfulness to God for. How many of you are cranky from time to time? Right? Yeah. You ought to be more thankful. And the way to do it is to consider the people in your life that are believers and look for ways that God is changing them by his grace and give him thanks for it and quit being so cranky. Parents, of course, this is our struggle. We're often very irritated with our children, frustrated. I would encourage you in all of the difficulties of parenting, and it is the most difficult work you'll do next to dying, to consider in your child's life where God is at work and give thanks to God for it. Consider that. Set the tone in your household of happiness by being thankful to God for his grace in their lives. But Paul not only prays thanks to God for the fruitfulness, he prays for more fruitfulness so he can give more thanks. This is really cool. So Paul has prayed thanks. We thank God. And then in the back half of the prayer, in verse, beginning in verse 9, he, he says, I have not ceased to pray for you, asking that God would fill them with more knowledge of his will, with wisdom and understanding, that they would walk more in a manner of the manner worthy of the Lord in verse 10, that they would be more pleasing to him, bearing more fruit in every good work and increasing in more knowledge of God, being strengthened by God with all power for all endurance and patience with all joy, giving thanks to the Father. So he's praising God for their fruitfulness and then praying to God for more of it so he can be more thankful. And so what should you be praying for? Oh, we should be praying for each other that we'd bear more fruit. This is what we're here for, isn't it? We come to Sabbath worship so that we can grow 
we want to become more like Jesus. We want to hear the gospel. We want to sing these songs that sing the gospel so that we might bear more fruit to God's glory, that he might get more thanks. And it begins and ends with prayer. So afterwards, Terry's going to be up here taking pictures for the directory. Why do we have a directory here? So that we can pray for each other. That's what the directory is ultimately for. So that you can take a name or two a day or a page a day or if you're retired, a couple pages a day and be praying for God's people. And here in this prayer, you learn what you should be praying for. So take the words of Paul's prayer, make them your own, and then I urge you, I implore you to be praying this for each other. I want to become more like Jesus. The people around you want to put their sin to death and want to bear more fruit in good works for God's glory, and we need to be praying for each other for this end. And the reason for this all is verses 13 and 14, because God the Father has delivered us from the domain of Satan's darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we've been redeemed, and redemption is the forgiveness of all of our sins. That's why we pray like this, because of this gospel. We have this priority of prayer, and then at the end, as he closes with his gospel, he just launches for the next several verses into the preeminence of Christ, the greatness of Jesus. In verses 15 to 23, Paul relates Christ's preeminence in the first three verses over creation and then into the church to show that there is none above or beyond Jesus Christ. He is highly exalted above all. In verses 15 to 17, Paul shows Christ in relation to creation. To put it plainly, he is the God who made it and sustains it all, and so he gets all the glory. That's what this is for. So in these verses, we see the history of the world in sum. We see that God the Father, through his Son, created everything. You see all things repeated, all things in heaven and earth, all things. Who made them? God did through his son. Jesus Christ is the eternal God, present at creation. He created all things. He made us particularly in his image to bring him glory. We were to be on this earth reflectors, image bearers of God to everybody else so that God would get the glory in his son. But we failed, haven't we? We've sinned. We have natures of sin, and so we sin. We're fallen. Christ, though, is worthy of all glory on this earth. How is he going to get it? If those who have borne the image of God no longer do as we should, how is God going to garner the glory in the creation that he's made for his glory when his creation is rebelling against him? Well, he's going to send his son. He's going to send his son in verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God. God is spirit. We can't see him. So God came in flesh in his son so that he could be what we aren't. Perfect image bearers of God. Why? To redeem the whole world so that it could be returned back to what it's lost and even better. This is the plan of God in the history of the world. And it all hinges on one person, one being Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is showing here in these verses. There's nobody like Jesus. There's no rival. There's no competitor. 
nothing and no one has the preeminence of Jesus. So he is God. He's created everything. Verse 16 at the end, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. He's eternal. And in him, all things hold together. This is true. This is the ultimate fundamental reality in the world. Now, later on this evening, when you are watching the Packers game, is this reality going to be seen at all in the three or three and a half hour broadcast? Is the reality that Jesus Christ is the God who created all things going to be given any due during the Packer game tonight? You're not going to see it anywhere. In fact, you'll probably see a lot of things opposite of it, except as his people watch it and give him glory for it, hopefully. Our world denies this truth, this reality. This is real. It is true that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on flesh, that he has always existed, and that he created all things, and all things hold together because of him. This is true, but you can go in this world and not see this truth anywhere. It's utterly ignored, and even more so, it's attacked. It's hated. But Jesus made all things for himself. How is Jesus going to How is this reality, this truth, going to become true not only in fact, but in deed, in reality? How is this world going to come to admit this reality, to enjoy it, to bow the knee? How? Do you understand what's going on here? Jesus made everything. He made it all for himself. And this world denies that reality. And he wants to put that right. How is he going to do it? What's his plan to bring the world to its knees and admit that Jesus is Lord? How? How is he going to do it? So, what verses 18 to 23 are answering. He's going to do it through the church. He's going to do it through you. God help us. The church over which he is the head, he is the beginning, he's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 20, through him he is going to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, through the blood of his cross. And you... Some of the people criticize me for using the word you in sermons. I probably do it too often and sometimes too harshly, but I do it because the apostles do it. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, there's the doctrine of sin. The doctrine of sin isn't that little kids are born pure and good. It isn't that children are neutral and we're neutral and we just get corrupted by the world. 
It is that we are born alienated from God and hostile to him. You have to have faith to believe that. Our educational system is based on the understanding that little kids are neutral and they just need to be taught good information so they can make good choices. I think we've tried that philosophy and it's not working. Why isn't it working? Because it's based on a falsehood. Little children are not good. They're not neutral. They don't just need some more information. They need a new birth. They need a complete renovation. They're alienated and hostile to God at one month and at 10 years and at 20 years and at 80 years unless Jesus Christ by his spirit comes and takes out their wicked little hostile heart and puts in a God-loving heart. And in you and in me too. And you... God has done this, has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach if you indeed continue. What's going on here? God's plan to save the world and bring it to Jesus is to save individual sinners and gather them in his church so he can reconcile everything in creation to himself. This is what he's doing. And we think the church is insignificant. And you think you're insignificant. God is reconciling the universe to himself through his little church. That's what he's doing. There is nothing more important on the face of this earth than his church. Than us. And every church that truly preaches the word and truly celebrates the sacraments and truly shepherds its people and builds them up in the faith. You and I matter <clears throat> the church matters. All right. So you're tracking with me, right? This is why we read in the Bible that the truth of God's word and especially the gospel seems utterly foolish to the world. Because our world only knows of winning by force and might by conquering by powerful armies led by powerful men. And God is going to conquer the world through his son becoming a human and dying on a cross and saving individual sinners in Rhinelander, Wisconsin. That's how he's going to do it. And it's so weak and it's so pathetic and it's so foolish. And that's exactly the way God wants to let his power is exalted. So what I'd like to do is I want to end with Christ, but in the meantime, I just want to challenge your love for the church. If you're tracking with me and you see Jesus is preeminent, he created all things for himself, but that reality is denied and hated in our world, and the way that Christ and God are going to bring the world to believe this truth is through the church. So do you see the church like that is my question. Do you live in your daily, weekly, monthly, annual life in all of its ways as if the church is this central to what God is doing in the world? See, we like to say we love Jesus. We love God. We worship him. 
And we know that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But what we often disconnect is that that first command, love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, is accomplished by fulfilling the second command to love your neighbors yourself, especially in the church. That if we love Jesus, we'll love his people. If we want to see Jesus glorified, then we'll love his people. We'll serve his people. So what are some threats to you prioritizing Christ's church in order to prioritize the glory of Jesus? What are some threats to that? Pastorally, I've seen some. One is your kids. You center your life around the activities of your children. And it takes you away from God's people. Now, we like to tell ourselves, I've done this. This is why I can speak of this so freely. We like to tell ourselves that the reason we're involving ourselves and our family and our time and our resources and so much around our children is so that we can do ministry. We're doing evangelism. We're going to build relationships. And that can happen, but it often doesn't. It's just a way to help ourselves feel better about it. So we don't have time to pray for the church because we're too busy running around for our kids. We don't have time to fellowship or practice hospitality because our nights and our weekends are so packed with activities for our children. We, we skip Sunday morning worship frequently because we got this and that and that for the kids. Or we were up late Saturday night getting back from something for our kids and so I can't get up. Or when I do get up and go to church, I'm wiped, so I got nothing for worship. And so in our culture, we've become such a, a child-centric culture in all the wrong ways. And it can distract us from the church. That isn't to say that children shouldn't be the focus in some ways. But in Scripture, this is the normal, regular thing for a believer is to live with your children in the life of the church. The church doesn't exist for your children or your family. We, you exist for us. And yet, what you love, your children will love. What you invest yourself in, and they can see it. What you care about, what your heart is attached to, your children will attach. You don't have to tell them. You don't have to talk about it. You just got to do it. And if you love the church, and you invest yourself in the church, they will come to love the church. So that's one thing. Another thing, and this has been in the last 50 years, a distraction from the pride of the church has ironically become parachurch ministries. Starting in the mid-1900s, 1950s, 60s, especially into the 17s, large organizations grew up apart from the church and began to pull a lot of people and time and talent, and resources, and finances from the church, and they've been poured into these parachurch organizations, such as crusades, and college-based ministries, and Christian camps, and just tons of stuff that have taken and taken and taken from the church. And I am absolutely convinced that one of the reasons, and we all lament this, that the church is so weak in our culture today is directly related to this. Because the church becomes second. God's people serve, and, and these ministries do good things. I'm not just dogging them to dog them, but they're not in the church. And if we can say, 
since the advent of all of these parachurch ministries, how has the church been doing? It's been declining. How is our culture doing? It's been declining. I'm not laying it at the feet of these, but I think this is a symptom of the problem. We're supposed to love the church, but we get so frustrated with the church. It's so slow moving. It seems so antiquated. Why can't we just start an organization that isn't beholden to anybody and poor finances and I can just do what I want through this ministry? Because that's not the way God has designed it. He's designed it for the church. So I want you to love the church because you love Christ. I want you to prioritize the church because Christ is the priority. He's preeminent. He's going to reconcile this world, all of creation, through this. That's what he's doing in this world. That's what he's doing. So verse 23 is the closing exhortation. If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven. There is this global focus of the gospel that has first come to us. So brothers and sisters, do not shift from the hope of the gospel. The gospel has great and eternal hope. Isn't that a good word? What a great word. Don't you need some hope? Hope for your eternal future, some hope for the eternal future of your children, some hope for this country that is being torn apart. Do you want some hope? Where are you going to get it? Where do you go for hope? It's to the gospel. What's the gospel? That Christ has reconciled those who are alienated and hostile in mind by his death. There's hope there. There's hope right there. So if you want to see this world changed for Christ, you start with the hope of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we ask for help now in living out this hope, especially as we go to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, And so God, please fill us with hope in this gospel for this world. In Jesus' name, amen. If I could have our elders come forward. One of the things I'd like you to consider as we go into the Lord's Supper is often you can tell how great somebody is by how low they're willing to go. And I've been reading or listening to a book on the formation of what we know as Top Gun. Remember Tom Cruise, Top Gun? That's a real organization. And uh, a guy has written, the guy who started it and how it all got started. And this man who started Top Gun was a low lieutenant in the Navy, and he founded this, and because of it, it went so well, it turned around the Vietnam War. He was promoted all the way up to becoming a commander of a um, supercarrier. And so he got to the top. Well, when he took over the supercarrier, there's like 5,000 sailors on it who serve in 2,000 different workstations. And this guy made it his goal twice a day to go and visit two of those workstations and try over his time on the ship to be visiting everybody where they work. So this highest dude in the Navy 
was willing to go to the lowest bowels of the ship. <laughs> and it surprised all of them because no other guy had ever done that. You can tell how great he is by how low he's willing to go. And that's Jesus, isn't it? Here we've heard of how great Jesus is. But his greatness is seen not only in his power to create the universe, but in how low he is willing to go. And how low is that? Well, low enough to die for you and me. Isn't that incredible? You know you. Would you die for you? Would you die for, you might die for your wife or children, but what about other people around you? Christ did it gladly for us all. We can tell his greatness by how low. And here, here we are at the table. How low is Christ willing to go? Well, he set a table for you. He prepared the food, put the tablecloth on the table. He put plates and silverware and napkins and dishes. He put a name card. There's your name. He greeted you at the door. He took you to the seat, pulled out your chair, put you in your seat, brought the food to you, like the elders are going to do, on your plate, and sat down at table with you, the Lord of the universe, the creator of the universe, and eats with you. And what are we eating? By faith. Not in fact, this doesn't become his blood, this doesn't become his body. By faith, we're taking part in his death and burial and resurrection. That's our Lord. And so as we take this, let's do it with some joy, with some hope. He is conquering the world through this little thing. It's giving you strength to serve him in the coming week. So let's give thanks and prayer. We'll do the bread first. We ask that you'd all hold it together and we'll take it as a sign of our unity and same thing with the cup afterwards. If you are a believer in Jesus, though not a member of this church, you're more than glad, uh, welcome to take part in this with us. You don't have to be a member of our church to do this. You just have to be a member of Christ. But if you are a member of Christ and yet in ongoing unrepentant sin, such as division with other believers, animosity, Maybe it's financial sin, maybe it's sexual sin, whatever. If it's kind of ongoing, unrepentant, long-term, you shouldn't take of this. You should first come and make your sin known, repent of it, and then join us next time, okay? But let's give thanks to God first. Father, we thank you again for your son, who though he is far above all others, he made himself below all others, so that his name might be exalted. So we give you glory, O oh God. Thanks for your son whose body was broken, blood sheds, so that we could come to table with you, our God, and be reconciled to you. We give you great thankfulness for this and ask that you'd nourish and strengthen us to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.